0: Take your Bibles, please, and turn with me to the book of Galatians, chapter 1. If you haven't caught on yet this morning, all of today is about the grace of God in Christ alone. Some of us fail to understand that grace is not only that which saves us, it is that which keeps us, and it's that which assures us that we will be with Christ. Are you thankful for that? Listen carefully. Music that is glorifying to God is music that glorifies God. And it's less about the music and more about the words. The songs that we sang this morning acknowledge openly and honestly that it is in Christ alone, by grace alone, that we have been rescued from our sin redeemed to the uttermost, filled with the Holy Spirit, immersed in the promises of God, and assured. I love this part. I've been saying it for 23 years here. Assured that everything's going to be okay. In Galatians, it is the message that Paul preached. And then came the troublemakers who not only undermined grace, who not only undermined the gospel, who undermined the apostle, who undermined his faith experience, who undermined his calling, who undermined his preaching, who undermined his very essence. Today Paul in verse 11 and on has to defend that gospel and defend that testimony, and defend his reputation by not budging one inch from the reality of the gospel through grace alone. If you look at verse 11 with me quickly, for I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is no man's gospel For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. For when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach among him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and I returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ, they were only hearing, it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. Father, I pray that you would help us to grasp and understand the defense that the Apostle Paul puts forth and the reasons for that defense. But even more, I pray that you might teach us how to respond to charges and accusations in a way that are pleasing to you. Father, it's our desire to continue to do the work of the ministry and preach the gospel. But it's our reality, at least as we look to the scriptures and around in our culture, that there are forces of evil contrary to that gospel. Those forces of evil work through man to undermine and discourage and to challenge and to confound the body of believers saved by grace alone. As Paul defends this gospel, show us the rest of the story, not just what he says, but how he says it, and remind us that this is an eternal Conflict between good and evil, right and wrong, sin and grace. Remind us that there is only one sole determining factor in the outcome of that cosmic eternal battle, and it is Jesus Christ alone. Give us a glimpse into the Word. Encourage us as we apply it in our lives and remind us the gospel hasn't called us to a better life. It's not a solution to all of the problems under the sun, nor is it an answer solely to our pain. Remind us that it's about our sin and we were dead, yet gloriously by grace, made alive unto God through Jesus Christ. May that be the message of the gospel. May we remain faithful. Until such time that the hope and the promise that we have is fulfilled, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Give us a burden for people. Remind us to tell the truth. Shield us when we feel the pinch of the battle. Point us to glory. The glory of God the Father alone in Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. As we look at this passage of Scripture, Paul is building on the first 10 verses where he says, plainly, there's only one gospel. He defines that gospel in the early verses based on grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus. He ties that gospel in verse 4 to substitutionary atonement, Jesus Christ delivering us from our sins and this present evil age. And it reminds us that it is solely according to the will of God the Father, and you have done nothing, 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 and the end game and result of that is glory, forever and ever glory, forever and ever glory, forever and ever. Amen. Glory to whom? To God alone in Jesus Christ, and that ministry of the Spirit that has rescued you. It is the message in which these churches heard from Paul and came to know Christ as Savior. And then in verse 6, he transitions, I'm astonished that now all of a sudden that gospel is not good enough. You're turning to a different gospel. Not that there is a different gospel. And even if an angel, and they don't, from heaven might preach another gospel, they shall be accursed. In essence, any other gospel provides absolutely no hope, no answer, and no salvation. It leaves you dead and accursed in your trespasses and sin. So he says to them who are listening to these naysayers, if if anyone's preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, you notice that? The one that rescued you, the one that you believed in, let him be accursed. Apparently, there was an accusation that Paul was preaching for the applause of men. You don't know the Apostle Paul. He says, you really think I'm doing this to make men happy with what I have to say? No, I am doing this as a servant of Christ. In response to the very same question we talked about last week, that Peter and John were hit with an X ex- chapter four, if you recall, they healed that lame man. And they were asked by the religious leaders, by what authority Paul is now going to give us a clear answer on the authority of the gospel and what authority he preaches by and the truth of the gospel that they had received and now, astonishingly, are quickly departing from it. We made already the case that Paul was an apostle. He was an eyewitness of Christ. We'll look at that account later. He was personally, personally appointed by that Christ to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And and that gospel and his apostleship were verified through the miracles that he was able to perform. By what authority? Sometimes in leadership, those seeking to trap you ask a question That doesn't trap you at all, but gives you an open opportunity to declare without question by what authority, Paul says? (laughs) Christ alone. That's my authority. And he'll go on to explain the rest of the story. Some of you are reminded of your years when you remember Paul Harvey and the rest of the story. Paul says to these people, this is the rest of the story, and I'm going to answer the attacks and those who undermine. For Paul, this was a matter of gospel. For Paul, this was a charge against his apostleship, which is a very charge against his calling, not just to salvation, but as a spokesperson, to his authority, to his message, to his integrity. It shifted away from content. Did you notice that? It shifts away from content to what we often call an ad hominem attack. We can't really attack the veracity of the message, so we're going to go after the messenger. That, that's the guy we're going to go after. It's almost like the Holy Spirit is directing Paul to write to our world today, isn't it? proverbs warned us that the wise of heart is called discerning and the sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness the heart of the wise makes his speech judicious and adds persuasiveness to his lips he is not addressing the accusers he's addressing those who are listening to them he'll get to the accusers quite quickly Right now, he's talking about the genuine believers and dismantling the accusations. Proverbs 17, the discerning sets his face toward wisdom. They want to know the details, the wise: Where's this coming from? Paul provides that. Proverbs 18 warns us that a fool's mouth is his ruin, and his lips are a snare to his soul. And the words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels, and they go down into the inner parts of the body. Boy, do we love to hear that juicy stuff, juxtaposing that kind of heart of a fool and the heart of the wise. Proverbs says an intelligent heart acquires wisdom or knowledge. They want the rest of the story. They want to hear the details. What are the facts here? the ears of the wise seeks knowledge. Then it warns us in Proverbs 18, the one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. And Paul says, all right, I've heard what you've had to say, and here is my response. Again, he is not speaking to the evildoers who are bringing accusation against him. He's speaking to those genuine believers in the churches of Galatia who have listened to these accusations and have started to doubt. That's what he's addressing. And he addresses it clearly because the unbeliever can't understand his defense here. Because he doesn't defend himself, he defends the gospel. There's important ramifications for that. This past week, I read a book by. Daryl Harrelson and Virgil Walker, about the state and about the age in which we live where the authorities are the ones who tell us right and wrong, that person who is over us who determines what we should do and what we shouldn't do. And rather than lament the government and politics and these naysayers, they warn the most alarming threat to the spiritual health and liberty of the church comes not from the government and not merely from the spiraling secularization of popular culture. A danger more serious by orders of magnitude arises from within the church itself because contemporary evangelicals have cultivated an atmosphere of blithe indifference to their own movement. We have failed to equip ourselves with the answers to the questions being asked, critical thinking and careful discernment are generally scorned within the evangelical movement today. And when you defend that gospel with the Scripture, when you stand your ground on that truth, what you will hear is, what difference does it make? Listen to me. It makes an eternal difference. Paul just told us that. Another gospel leaves you in your sin. There is only one gospel. R.C. Sproul identifies these authorities in our lives as love lines. He said, whenever we're taught by someone we admire, a trusted teacher, a parent, that becomes the final recourse of our proof, because so-and-so told me. That's exactly what Paul's dealing with here. So-and-so told you, I'm going to answer that question. Listen carefully. Every one of us needs to learn to discern like the Berean Christians, where Paul rolls into town and he preaches his gospel, and it's amazing what they do in Acts chapter 17. Paul, that was moving. That was enlightening. We were really engaged, but now, Paul, we're going to go, we're going to search the scriptures and compare that to what, what you just told us so that we can be sure that is absent in evangelicalism today. We would rather listen to the charge and accusation and the undermining of the gospel and authority and a thousand other things. But What is called for is critical thinking and careful discernment. So, he walks them down a path in chapter 1 and then into chapter 2 of all of the events that transpired, not as a defense of himself, but a defense of the very God who called him in his mother's womb. Make no mistake, this is a defense of the gospel, and it's a defense of the gospel because if you get it wrong, there are dire implications, and Paul's passion was to get the gospel right. In essence, it's a matter of epistemology. How can we know that what we know is true? What is the nature and the source of knowledge? How do we differentiate between truth or opinion? That's where they're wrestling as as a believer right here. And what he is going to say is, this is my experience, but even grander than that, he will spend the rest of the book building a case from the Old Testament, and then of course the new as he pens the book of Galatians to say epistemology of salvation. And godliness must be grounded in the word, and only that word from God. Really important. So, in a negative way, it comes across as I could care less what you think or feel. The source of knowledge is the truth in a positive way. I don't need to be confused by what you think and feel because the source of knowledge is the truth, and my Bible is perfectly clear that God reached into my life and rescued my soul, full stop. That's what Paul defends, the context of this text. I spent a a lot of time looking at John 14 and 15 and 16, how the words that Jesus spoke came from the Father, and He spoke them, And then the Holy Spirit intervened in the lives of the apostles and allowed them to record those words in the context of Scripture. And the message of that recording and gospel given over to the apostles was then delivered to the church. And the church, entrusted with the word of the gospel, must now contend for that gospel. But the source of all of that is our epistemology and therefore the cry of the Reformation sola scriptura. We start with the Scripture. That is the norming norm. That is what declares truth from opinion. That's how Paul goes about his defense. Three different times in the book of Acts, the apostle Paul shares his personal testimony. First, in Acts chapter 9, then in Acts chapter 22, and then in Acts chapter 26. I want you to turn to Acts chapter 9, if you would please. And we'll remind ourselves again of his testimony. And as we remind you of his testimony, we will remind you of his epistemology and the reason that his testimony was so sure for the apostle Paul. But Saul, verse 1 of chapter 9, the book of Acts, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters. To the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, that derogatory term for Christians and Christ followers, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. <clears throat> and now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Paul had called this meeting. No, he didn't. No, he didn't. Paul had nothing to do with this. Jesus stops him on his way to persecute Christians and says, Who do you think you are? Maybe the same question. By what authority, Paul? God begins a work in Paul's life. Paul says, or, or, or this voice said, "I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting. From this point forward, rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you were to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. He was blinded. So they let him. By the hand, and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Can you imagine? In this darkened world for three days, what what happened? This was an intelligent man. He knew Scripture better than anyone else. He'll testify in this text that that's the truth. I can imagine the things running through his mind. What, what just happened and what's going on and what is the end of all of that the text teaches now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias and the lord said to him in a vision Ananias and he said here i am lord and the lord said rise and go to the street called straight and at the house of judas look for a man of tarsus named Saul for behold he's praying and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard about this guy and how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has the authority from the chief priests to bind all who call upon the name. This guy's got a reputation. Are you sure you want me to do this? The Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying hands on him he said, Brother Saul the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. There are only Certain people filled with the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts, and those people were believers. It's not the world, it's not the accusers, it's the people who have been radically changed. And immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight, and he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. I'm not going to go on, but then the text says, and immediately he started preaching. Paul realized what had happened to him, he understood the implications of it, he went about the business of declaring that truth. He's been to the churches of Galatia, he is now absent from them. These evildoers have come in, attacked him personally, attacked his authority, his apostleship, his message, his integrity. And he responds to that beginning in verse 11 of Galatians 1. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is no or not man's gospel. Make no mistake, beginning in verse 3, his thesis statement for what he says in the next number of verses, is all about the gospel. Paul is defending first and foremost the gospel He's defending that gospel based on his apostleship, and God is trying, or or, or Paul is trying to dispel or dismiss this people-pleasing tag of verse 10, but he's speaking to believers. Notice the word brothers. We spend way too much time and energy preaching to the people who have no interest in the story, Defending the truth to those who say, what is truth? And our human strength, trying to persuade them instead of care for God's people. So, Paul says, I am informing you who are believers, maybe saying, I'm reminding you that this is, this is not man's gospel. This doesn't come through a human idea For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. I didn't receive it from anybody. It's not like Paul was on this road asking for someone to give him the answer to the question, what is truth? He didn't receive this through education and, and teaching, whether it be the apostles or any other source, but I received it solely through a revelation, that which can only be shown through Jesus Christ. It is from Christ, it is about Christ, and I preach Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism. He has telling the same testimony that we looked at in chapter 9. How I persecuted the church of God violently. Paul understands his sin. He understands the distortion of truth. He understands that he was blinded in carrying out this, this attempt to annihilate the gospel on the way and anyone who believed that. And he was violent about it. He tried to To destroy it, in fact. The gates of hell will not prevail against that truth. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age, among my people. And I was so extremely jealous for the traditions of my fathers, but, what a great word, but, let me tell you the rest of the story. When He who had set me apart before I was born, that He being God Himself, and who called me by His grace, His unmerited favor in Christ alone, that God in Christ Was pleased to reveal his son to me. Before I was born, here's some who will teach you that's only because God knew you would believe. Blasphemous. Paul wasn't looking to believe anything, Paul was a persecutor of the church. God stopped him in his track, not because he was seeking anything, but because God was seeking Paul. And he said, watch this, you persecutor of the church, you you have achieved such status in Judaism. Paul said, that can only be explained by a God who set me apart before I was born. Do you really think that Paul would have met a Christian like you with your Romans road and said, oh yeah, I get it now. No. Do you you think you've would convinced this man so steeped in the Old Testament Scripture that Christ was the answer? Not a chance. Do you think any amount of passion contrary to Paul's would have persuaded him? No. Paul did nothing, nothing, nothing. But Paul understands the source of that salvation, and he says, you know what? It was before I was even born. God did this. Appointing me as an apostle, but to appoint him as an apostle means he first must have saved his soul, and that's the grace that comes in Christ alone. God, God did this all before I even came out of the womb. It reminds me of Jeremiah, the prophet. God formed me in the womb, and He, and he, and he knew me. Make no mistake that the Paul… Preach this gospel, and describes it in verses 3 through 5. Now, again, describes it in these terms. This gospel is in Christ alone. It is by grace alone. It is through faith alone, for the glory of God alone. And just stop it, those of you who say, eh, we're tired of the Calvinism, we're tired of, the, of, of Luther, we're tired of the Reformation. They were just simply fighting the same fight. We're fighting because our source, our epistemology, our understanding of the gospel does not come by men, and it doesn't come by systems. It comes by God who chose us before the foundation of the earth in Jesus Christ for His glory alone. Yes? That's where it comes from. Those names really mirror exactly what Paul's saying here. He's telling the rest of the story. Everyone listen carefully. I don't want to get stuck here, but we might. The moment any one of you adds anything to the gospel, it ceases to be the gospel. When any one of you thinks that you did this, you, you ran to God, Three things happen. Number one, you are robbing God of his glory alone. God did this from start to finish. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Verse five. And to think that somehow God must cooperate with you, see, we we couch it in terms that we must cooperate with God. Yeah, but in essence, You're saying that God must cooperate with you in your decision. You rob God of His glory on the road to Damascus, grabbing a sinner intent to kill Christians and saving his soul to God be the glory forever and ever. You follow me? You rob Him of His glory. Number two, to add any kind of I did this and your own personal story into this minimizes the person and work of Jesus Christ. Because he alone did this. He took your sin and became sin. He took his righteousness and made you righteous. There was this, this personal exchange that took place. And when you make this about you, you minimize the death and the anguish and the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. In essence, you say, That's never enough. I make the final choice. Let me tell you, in God's eyes, substitutionary atonement is always enough and it satisfies the wrath of God for your sin and finally when you add works yourself to this gospel you deceive your own self and there are eternal consequences to that let them be a curse what are you trusting today Paul said, I I am trusting only that God the Father, before I even came out of the womb, chose me, and by grace that comes through Christ alone, rescued me, and by that same grace called me to be an apostle. That's all I know. Well, Paul, that's all you need to know, and that's all we know, and that's a glorious message, yes? Yes? say, but it's confusing, Pastor Jim. Why is it confusing? If God did this, nothing can pluck you out of His hand. If God did this start to finish, nothing in this world can touch you. If God did this start to finish, you shall see God someday. Why? Because God did it. It's the essence of the gospel, Paul said. He's, He's trying to get them to understand the message that he preached and that they heard. And he says, "God did this by being pleased to reveal, to take the blinders off of my eyes, persecuting those who believed in Jesus Christ. He, he allowed me to see those things different." You notice how God did that? It was God's initiative, not Paul's. His initiative was to destroy this gospel. But he said, God had a different plan, and that plan meant that I must preach Him who, the God who calls, the Christ who saved, and the Spirit who changes us. Paul was not selected. He was appointed. And his appointment had no other criteria than divine grace. And after his salvation, he did not consult with anyone immediately. He didn't go into Damascus and say, hey, what do you guys make of this? What do you guys think of this? How do you feel about this? None of that. None of that. You see, there were some who said, well, you just went in there and someone told you that, and that's the only reason you're preaching to God. He's he, he saying, no, God illuminated me by opening my eyes. He transformed me through the nature of His grace. And He revealed His Son To me. I didn't go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Paul said, here's what I did after this happened. I needed some time to think. Now, you, th- you think? <laughs> Could you imagine? His whole life was turned upside down. I also believed that he preached. In this area of Arabia, but we know that he traveled there. We don't find this anywhere else in the New Testament. We can make a lot of speculative statements. We just don't know. But I have to wonder if this guy, based on everything that he knew, just had to get his mind wrapped around what just happened to him. So, away he goes all by himself. So, for those who were saying that he got his gospel from someone else, and in and, and the absence of integrity, changed that gospel, he's saying, that's not how it happened. I, I went all by myself to, to cry and reconcile this and deal with this in my life. But there's one thing that we do know in Paul's life. True faith involves drastic lifestyle change. There are some who say, well… Sometimes it happens, sometimes it doesn't. In true faith, it always happens. He changes you from the inside out for His glory, He changes everything. And Paul is an amazing example of that. There are some who will teach you that you can accept the facts of the gospel and never change. It's not what the Bible teaches. There's some who say you can accept the fact and even assent to the facts of the gospel and not grow. That's not what the Bible teaches. There's some who say, "Well, you can be saved and, and not give up your current life and lifestyle and the choices that you make. That's not what the gospel says. The gospel changes everything. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas or Peter and remained with him fifteen days. Three years after his salvation, he goes to Jerusalem. He meets Peter, one of the leaders of Christian church in Jerusalem, and he spends fifteen days. He doesn't do an MDiv, doesn't go to Bible college, doesn't learn everything he needs to know in fifteen days. Paul's trying to sort this out, and Peter's a leader of the church, and he, said, he, he, he wants to find out what this stuff was all about, and, and glory, they both share the same message, God did this, we didn't do this, God did this. We're going to look at that next week. So Paul says, don't, don't tell me I went to Jerusalem, and, and they gave me the gospel, and I changed the gospel, because it doesn't happen in 15 days. He said, in fact, I, I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother, Therefore, what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. He swears an oath. I'm telling you the absolute truth. God did something that changed everything. Changed everything. He's saying, That's the gospel that I brought to you. In essence, he's saying, With this oath, I do not lie. Someone else is distorting the gospel. Somebody else has changed the story. Someone else has embellished that reality. He then says, then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. We learned from the Scriptures. They preached the gospel in those areas. And I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They couldn't pick me out in a crowd, but they knew all about me. This persecutor of the church, maybe he's implying these rabble-rousers who are making false accusations. They knew all about me. They were only hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. Something happened to this guy. Something happened to this guy. He went through a drastic and dramatic lifestyle change. What happened to this guy? They knew exactly what happened to this guy, and Paul did not hesitate to tell his story. And his story is a story of grace in Christ alone, by faith alone, to the glory of God alone. And for those of you who are asking the question, how does this happen? This, this guy is changed in, in an instant. I'll tell you how it happens. Faith. Listen carefully. Paul was not looking for this, but in the moment that God took the scales off his eyes, in the moment that God revealed himself to Paul, in the moment that he called him to salvation, in the moment, in the very moment that he called him to his apostleship, he was saved. Nothing he did after that meant anything. In that moment that God revealed himself and compelled him to faith, Paul was absolutely changed. But boy, he didn't understand what happened, and he had to figure it out. And boy, does he do a great job of figuring that out. In the book of Galatians, telling that story. What was the result of the church at large? The very thing that Paul said would happen… And verse 5, when we understand that it's in grace alone, when we understand that forgiveness or peace comes from God alone through Jesus Christ, when we understand that He gave Himself to deliver us from this present evil age and to deliver us from our sin, when we understand that it was only according to the will of God, there is only one response, to Him be glory forever and ever. So what was the response of those hearing Paul? And they glorified God because of me, because of what God did in my life, they glorified God. How does this happen? It's a God thing. From eternity past, through Jesus Christ, for God's glory alone, forever and forever and forever. I've been in this ministry stuff for 40 years now, and I've heard a lot of testimonies. I've grown tired of those testimonies because it's all about our story, not about my story at all. It's about the story of God in Christ Jesus and what He has done for us. Everyone has a story. There's only one hero in the story of salvation And take a wild guess in Christ alone. For the Life Group DVD, I share a little of my testimony at the Primitive Methodist Church in Johnson City. Changed everything. I didn't know what I was doing. I just finally realized my sin. I realized what God did for me in Jesus Christ. I went forward and accepted. Oh, no, just stop right there. Before I took one step out of that pew, before I prayed any sinner's prayer, before I did anything, I was clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Because the moment you believe, you are saved. God did not need me to say a prayer of the sinner. He rescued me. I didn't have to walk an aisle. He rescued me. God did it. It was over in an instant. And everything else after that, that was mere obedience. Mere obedience. Nothing added to my salvation. Is that your story? Maybe the world would be less perplexed about what happened if that's the end of our story. I'm not sure. But somewhere along this road, God grabbed me and I've never been the same again To him be glory forever and ever and ever and ever. End of discussion. It's not about your sin. It's not about your experience. It's not what you did at that time. It is what God did in Christ alone. God stopped him. God saved him. God appointed him, and from that day forward, he was radically different. Who was the whole hero in that story? It was Christ alone. Therefore, Paul in that testimony, says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That is the story of salvation. You were bought with a price. You've been rescued for your, from your sin. And Paul says it's not about me, and it's not about them, and it's not about what I did. To God be the glory forever and forever and forever. And God's people said, you know, the book of the Revelation, the last book of the New Testament reminds us that we will be gathered before the throne of God, and we will sing worthy is the lamb that was slain receive power and glory and honor and dominion forever and forever and forever. Don't wait till then to give him the glory. He is the hero of the story. Father, thank you. My human mind and heart at times wants to offer objections or caveats, but in the end of the day, it is clear that I've done nothing, nothing, nothing. I live out the remainder of my days, not perfect, far from it, but never ceasing to proclaim the glory of God in Christ alone. It might be a life. May my life be a testimony to that glorious grace and peace. And may my story be solely about you and your glory forever and forever and forever through Christ. Amen.